0: Good afternoon, welcome to the Cato Institute for our book forum today on DC Confidential, Inside the Five Tricks of Washington by David Schoenbrod. My name is John Samples, I'm Vice President here at the Cato Institute. Uh, At the beginning, I'd like to give an overview. Many of you may be familiar with book forums having come here often. Uh, Essentially, after my brief, also brief introduction, you, we will hear first from our author uh, David Schoenbrod, about his book, followed by some comments by Bill Gostin from the Brookings Institution, and then somewhere around 1:30, or perhaps a little before, you will have the floor, and we will have questions and answers. Um, and then at 1:30, and after, we will have lunch. Um, I would ask that if you have cell phones, which I do, uh, please turn them off. Um so let's begin. We live at a time when as David was just saying in the green room Congress, the American Congress which was it comes first in the Constitution and in many w- ways was first in the ha- heart of the founders and certainly was considered the core institution of a republican government and this government was the Republican government being the only one fit for the genius of the American people, according to James Madison. We live at a time when that Congress is the least trusted institution, and as David said, the most reviled institution, perhaps one of the most reviled in developed countries as a representational institution. I would suggest to you that that cannot be a good situation. Some of the polling is off, some of the polling uh, reflects uh, misunderstandings of Congress, but certainly the depth of the unhappiness with Congress is not misleading. There is something to public opinion there, and it is, not, it is, I think, rooted in perhaps the idea that we have often here at the Cato Institute, which is that something's not right with Congress, right? My, now, particularly, we come across that in the last decade or so during questions of the war powers, my colleague Gene Healy said uh, something like, we always go up to the hill trying to get them to do their job on the war powers. That is trying to take uh, Article 1, Section 8, uh, conference of the declaration of war, trying to get Congress to take that power seriously when they clearly did not want to take it seriously. Another moment in the last decade was when the 90th day of the Libyan incursion had taken place and everyone almost forgot. It took even Rand Paul, I think, to the 91st day to mention that maybe there's something wrong with this. Congress is an afterthought in the war powers. Our author today is going to tell us why the Congress is failing the way it is and, and talk more broadly about why Congress is an afterthought in so many things. It's a book about what's wrong with Congress and a book what, that, about what might be done. David Chernbroad is a pioneer in the f- field of environmental law. He teaches at New York Law School. He has served as a senior staff attorney for the National, Defense, uh, National Resources Defense Council, where he led the charge to get the lead out of gasoline. Uh, he is co-leader of a project at NY Law called Breaking the Law Jam, an environmental law for the 21st century. He also holds the position of trustee professor there at NYU. Uh, He was a senior fellow at the Cato Institute until 2007. That was the past. Who knows what the future will bring, David. And as we were talking also prior to this, he was intern and then a staff member for US Senator uh, uh, and then Vice Vice President and then presidential candidate, Hubert Humphrey in 62, 63, and 65, and 68. He holds a law degree from Yale, a a degree in economics from Oxford, and a BA in mathematics from Yale College, which is very impressive. So David Chernberg, our author.
1: Thank you very much, John. Um, Washington today is a place of high drama. There is some talk about the art of the deal, but there aren't many deals and there are few decisions, even on the most pressing issues facing the nation. Now, the uproar and the indecision harm the nation. The crisis is no doubt partly a function of the personalities involved. But our best hope of preventing future crises is to deal with the root cause of the problem. And the root cause of the problem is that Washington has lost the trust of the people. Uh, The the figures show that that the percentage who trust the government, the federal government, to do the right thing has just just plummeted from three quarters had that kind of trust in 1964, now it's about 19%, 19%, and it was so before and after the election of Donald Trump. Now, this loss of trust is well known. The reason for it is not. Now, we have a vital clue from the writings of William Galston. He notes that the loss of trust took place from 1965 to 1975, during that decade, and has remained uh, low since. Now, something happened during that decade. Which brought the American people to distrust the uh, federal government, and that something happened in Congress. Previous to that decade, the trust that people had in the federal government was based upon a Congress where, whose members took credit for the benefits that they provided to the people, but also blame for the harms, the, the burdens that they imposed upon the people. And that had the effect of aligning the interests of the constituents and the um, and the people. Um, in the 1960s, however, uh, legislators of both parties uh, figured out a way that, I'm getting confused by how these slides work, okay, now I begin to understand. Figured out a way that they could shift the blame away from themselves for the bad consequences. You see that up there, okay? Um, Now, the blame shifting began innocently enough. I mean, think about it. We thought this government we had in Washington was great. It had gotten us, I'm talking about our vantage point in in the early 60s. The government had got us through the Great Depression, won World War II, Invented the atomic bomb and nuclear power, which we thought was gonna be great. Built the interstate highway system, which didn't exist previously. Was now presiding over the world's most strong economy and it passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. This was a wonder working government. So naturally, people wanted that government to do more things like, for example, clean up the environment. Now the voters also understandably didn't want to feel heavy burdens for having these great things delivered. And so the legislators also understandably uh, looked for ways to please us, to please us voters in in a way that gave us what we wanted but didn't impose heavy burdens. So take the Clean Air Act of 1970, for example. Uh, It promised clean air without heavy burdens. And here was the theory by which they got to that. That if they set a strict deadline for cleaning up the air, then industry would be forced to invent the technologies that would get us there. And that seemed credible. I mean, think about it. American ingenuity had put a man on the moon so it ought to be able to clean the air on earth. And that's what we were told, explicitly in those terms. Now, the problem was the theory did not work nearly well enough to actually achieve clean air without heavy burdens. For example, to achieve the clean air goals in Southern California would have required taking three-quarters of the cars off the road. Now, that just wasn't going to happen. So um, what, what happened instead was that Members of Congress from both parties quietly lobbied EPA not to require these kinds of changes, not to take the cars off the road. And then they blamed EPA for failing to clean up the air. Now, once Congress began to behave in this way, in in ways that began to legislate in a way that allowed them to shift blame. There wasn't any going back uh, because their habits had shifted in a way that let them make rosy promises but avoid blame for bad consequences. So what we have here is a situation where w- where the we went from the uh, uh, the interests of Congress and the people being aligned to one where their interests were in conflict. So that's why we don't trust. Our government is the incentives of the people who are in charge. Congress uh, doesn't line up with our interest. Now, to shift blame, members of Congress use tricks. Now, voters know that politicians are tricksters, so how do they get away with it? Well, for the same reason that magicians can seem to pull rabbits out of hats. We know that they're magicians, we know they're playing tricks. But we don't see the sleights of hand they use to play the tricks. So the people don't see the sleights of hand that, uh, that the politicians in Washington and Congress use to make rosy promises but avoid blame. Now, there are five chief tricks through which they do this. One is the regulation trick. Okay, And with it, um, now, previously, previously to the advent of, of the regulation trick in the late 1960s, Congress had sometimes adopted the regulatory rules itself. In other words, it had itself voted for the rights and the protections we would get and also for the burdens that would be imposed on the people that would have to change their behavior. Now, that gave members of Congress both credit for the benefits and blame for the burdens. Otherwise, sometimes Congress delegated the authority to make rules to administrative agencies and broadly worded statutes, in which case, the agencies would get the credit and the blame. And basically, the agencies more or less generally wanted to kind of do sensible things. With the regulation trick, something entirely new happened. Congress created judicially enforceable rights to regulatory protection and commanded the agencies To impose the duties needed to provide that protection. So, that in turn allowed the agent, the Congress, to shift the blame to the agency both for the burdens of regulation and the failures to to provide the protection promised. So, what we have here is a situation where Congress is, the agency really is a puppet of Congress and Congress blames the agency. That's the sleight of hand. Now the tricks harm us. With with this particular trick, with the regulation trick, regulation, politicians write statutes to maximize the credit for them and minimize the blame to them, not to maximize the benefits to us and minimize the burdens on us. So that's why we have the Cleaner Act we have today. It creates hundreds of rights. I'm not deploying the rights. I litigated to protect them when I was at the Natural Resources Defense Council. The problem is that the whole thing is so incredibly complicated that, well, as Gina McCarthy, President Obama's EPA administrator said, uh, each sector has 17 to 20 rules that govern each piece of equipment, and you've got to be a neuroscientist to figure it out. Now with all this detail on the statutes and the, stat- and the Cleaner Act is hundreds of pages long, it quickly becomes obsolete. But all the blame for the obsolescence falls on the agency. So the legislators feel no need to update it. It hasn't been updated in 27 years. Just insane. So, but the statute as it is, is perfect for Congress. All of them, every one of them could either be against pollution-killing children, or against regulation-killing jobs, and all of them can avoid having to grapple with the trade-offs necessary to give us more regulatory protection with less regulatory burdens. And the consequence of this legislative schizophrenia is polarization. All of these tricks result in more polarization. Now, another trick is the money trick. It, too, began in the later 1960s. Previously, Congress generally raised the revenues needed to pay for the benefits it promised. Like in 1935, when Roosevelt and Congress created Social Security, they passed and took responsibility for the taxes needed to pay for the the benefits then and into the future. That's now how it began to work in the 60s. Congress systematically began to promise a whole lot more by way of spending and tax cuts than it paid for, and therefore they were able to shift the blame to their successors in office for the burdens needed to pay for what they promised. And and here's the sleight of hand. They make very concrete the benefits they're going to give us. Every year we get a letter from Social Security saying how much we're going to get, right? They don't tell us what we're going to have to pay to get that. And what's gonna happen is the fiscal crisis down the road. We all know that's gonna happen. But we just don't, who could you blame for it? I mean, we don't know whether the current Congress has made it better or worse. They hide the data. <laughs> Another trick, the federal mandate trick. It too began in the late 60s. Now previously Congress had passed statutes that either required the states to obey constitutional rights or offered them grants It came with conditions, but the conditions were related to the purpose of the grant. So if Congress was going to give highway grants to states for the states to build highways, they required that the concrete used in the highways would be of decent quality. I mean, it would be dumb not to, right? But things began to change where Congress gave grants, but shoehorned into them requirements that to get the highway grant, you had to do something that was totally unrelated to the highway, like regulate air pollution. And so it turned out that this allowed Congress to promise benefits like cleaner air, but shift the blame to the states for the burdens needed to clean the air. So basically what Congress did was to invite the states out for dinner and leave the bill to the states. That's what it's about. And the Clean Air Act, again, illustrates this. Um, if a state does not regulate to clean the air the way that Washington prescribes, then the state loses the highway grant. Now, not to, to lose the highway grant would be political suicide for any governor. Because, after all, where did the money come from but taxes from the constituents in that state? Right? Well, then you might ask yourself the question, how is it then that citizens voters don't blame the legislators who passed such a statute? Well, if you look at all the roll call votes on the Clean Air Act down through history, Congress never voted on cutting off funds to states if they didn't do the federal billing. They only voted for clean air. They avoided roll call votes on what would have gotten them blamed. So there's the sleight of hand again. The debt guarantee trick. Previously, Congress had long, had guaranteed the payment of some private debts. Like for example, it guaranteed that deposits for small depositors would be guaranteed. Initially, only deposits up to $2,500. There were no guarantees for big deposits or for for big loans to banks, uh, like a billion dollars of bonds from Citibank or something like, or Bank of America. Now, with the debt guarantee trip, which began in 1968, Congress began to guarantee even the biggest debts of the financial giants. Now, this came out of hubris. You know, like, we've, we haven't had a crash since 1929. There's really no risk to these guarantees. Don't worry about it, OK? Uh, and, and the guarantees were for free. Now, no business person would, in their right mind, guarantee the debts of another business without a fee, and the fee would be higher, the riskier the business. But there was no fee here. So that gave incentives for these financial giants to make more risky loans because they could go ahead and borrow money from, uh, from lenders, and the lenders didn't have to worry about whether they were good for it because the federal government stood behind them. Now, in good times, that skyrocketed the profits in Wall Street. But when bad times came, which they did in 2007, the banks were on the verge of bankruptcy. So the federal government bailed them out, as you know. And voters got pretty darn angry at that, but they got angry at the people in office in 2007, 2008. But for decades previously, the incumbents were getting big campaign contributions from Wall Street Because what had been going on was had been building up Wall Street's profits. Now, people got very angry about this, as I've said. And in response, Congress passed the Dodd-Frank Act. But guess what? Dodd-Frank keeps the same thing going. The debt guarantees are still there. And they're not priced at a level that really makes the banks have to pay attention to the risks they're incurring. So it's going on today. Now, by, by the way, notice that Donald Trump talks about easing the regulation of, of Wall Street. He doesn't talk about ending the debt guarantee trick. Congress pay, plays the uh, tricks even when it comes to war. Now, during the nation's first 160 years, Congress took responsibility for going to war. That changed with Korea in 1950. President Truman called it a police action. 33,000 Americans died there. Now, war without congressional responsibility proved to be highly unpopular with voters. And in response in 1973, Congress passed the War Powers Act, which is supposed to make the president ask Congress for authority to go to war. But with the war trick, Congress uses a loophole in the statute, which allows it not to vote on controversial wars. that means that if the war is popular in the end, then Congress could vote in the, could, could, could Congress, members of Congress could march in the victory parade. And if it's unpopular, they could put the entire blame on the president. So that's why we go to war in lots of places without Congress being on the same page as the president. Now, the presidents have been on the, in on the tricks too. Uh, the war trick, for example, gives the president unilateral power to go to the war. With the rest of the tricks, the president, like members of Congress, is able to shift blame somewhere else. So the president is the trickster in chief, and that's been true from LBJ to Tricky Dick and on down to the president. So what to do? The answer, I say, is not to hate the players, but to hate the game. In other words, we gotta change the ground rules of politics in Washington. Now, individual legislators are afraid to change the rules or, or to, act, you know, to act without the tricks because then they're gonna be having to take responsibility whereas their opponent in the next election could pretend not to be responsible, okay? Um, so we have to change the rules so that members of Congress must take responsibility for the bad consequences. That's gonna put us back in charge. Let me give you an example of the kind of change I'd like to see uh, made. You know, the Truth in Lending Act, that says to banks, before you lend anybody money, you gotta tell them how much they're gonna have to pay. Well, what we need is um, an, an analog to that. Congress ought to apply that same principle to itself when they make us money promises they got to provide us with the real evidence as to what it's going to cost us in the long run. In other words, for the federal government to stay solvent in the long run, how much are the taxes going to have to increase or the spending going to have to be decreased for the average family annually in order for the government to make, its end, make ends meet? How much has the current Congress changed that amount, and how much more will it cost the average family if Congress delays, OK? So that would end up being a truth in spending and taxing act. Now, there are analogous ways to stop the other tricks. And I call the whole thing the Honest Deal Act. Uh, and if you go to my the web page for my book, uh, you'll see under the, I'm looking Maybe this is the light. There it is. There is a description. There under that heading is a more detailed description of the act. Here are some games, some computer games, you could, online games you could play that would kind of give you more particulars about how the tricks work. Uh, and uh, here's the, here's the uh, web address for the, for the website. I urge you to go take a look there. By way of summing up finishing, I'd like to say this that the tricks are what keeps the foul water in the swamps of Washington. The Honest Deal Act is a way to drain the swamps. Our swamp drainer in chief has so far seen fit not to seek to stop the the tricks. And as as William Galston wrote on on July 11th, there is no evidence that Donald Trump cares much about democracy, amen. (coughs) But I think there's hope. The people hate Washington, they hate Congress. Uh, The polls also show that the people don't want the president, whether it's President Obama or President Trump or somebody else to take over. They want Congress to be responsible. And you know, when you talk to people in Congress on both sides of the aisle, they know this is a terrible system. They're not proud, they're not proud. And I talked to a bunch of former uh, of, of governors, and they were meeting the day before with a bunch of governors and now senators, and the, uni- and, the, and the unanimous report was that these former governors said their worst day as governor was better than their best day as senator. So if we begin to get motivated, if we begin to show folks in power that we want to change, I think change is possible.
0: Thanks, David. Now we'll turn to our commentator, William Galston. William Galston holds the Ezra K. Zilka chair in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program, where he serves as a senior fellow. A former policy advisor to President Clinton and presidential candidates, Galston is an expert on domestic policy, political campaigns, and elections. His current research focuses on designing a new social contract and the implications of political polarization. He is also College Park professor at the University of Maryland, where he has held several positions, including founding director of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement. Uh, He is the author of eight books and more than 100 articles in the fields of political theory, public policy, and American politics. Perhaps for libertarians, I would say the most uh, pressing of those books would be liberal purposes. He is also, as you may well know and see his work often, he is a columnist, a weekly columnist, for the Wall Street Journal. And I think we'll probably have something new tomorrow (laughs) to read. Uh, So let's welcome Bill Gostin to the Cato Institute.
2: Okay, am I? correctly aligned with the microphone. Good, well, I, I read David Schoenbrod's book with pleasure and profit. You should, too. Buy, bu- buy his book, give him royalties, cheer him up. Uh, uh, and uh, I've decided to divide my remarks into two very clunky but easy to understand categories. First, a big category, areas of agreement with this book, and then a much smaller, shorter category, just to keep things interesting, some areas where I dissent. I should begin uh, by saying that I cast my first presidential vote uh, for your old boss in 1968. Uh, I'm Not sure he would be entirely pleased by your line of intellectual development, but who knows? He was an intelligent man, and uh, he might have learned something in the ensuing half, half century. So, but let me begin with the areas of agreement, which, as I indicated, are many and significant. First of all, the government of the United States as a whole is not functioning very well and the American people know it. And of the three constitutional branches, the least functional, the most dysfunctional, the most broken Mm -hmm. is the Congress of the United States. So let's let's just begin with that big fact and move on from there. We also agree with a lot of basic lines of critique of Congressional behavior. And let me, uh, let me just list three of them which I think are significant, not entirely clearly broken out in this book, but they all figure in the narrative and the analysis. First of all is the behavior that I will call responsibility avoidance. Not necess- that's not quite the same as blame shifting. You know it is it is broader and more troubling than that, and the best example of that, and David has talked about this, is you know is the avoidance, the responsibility avoidance in the area of going to war. Uh, it has been a very very long time since the Congress of the United States has officially declared war. Uh, if there's been an official declaration uh, since December 7th, 1941, I can't remember it. So, you know, you know excuse me? It wasn't any.
1: Well, the last,
2: that's the last time. We've that's the last time. Well, that's, you know, 75 years and counting. So, And it's not to say that the ensuing 75 years have been entirely free of costly military engagement. Uh, you know, we've resorted to. Uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolutions or the authorization on the use of military force adopted in the immediate wake of 9-11 and which has been used as an umbrella justification for conflicts well beyond the most generous interpretation of the purview and limits of the AUMF, et cetera. So we certainly agree on that. Uh, Secondly, we agree that Congress uses various devices to focus its efforts and its attention on the short-term and to leave undiscussed or under-discussed and certainly not very visible to the ordinary public eye the long-term consequences of short-term decisions. So short-termism which i think is an affliction throughout american society including alas the corporate sector is alive and well in the congress of the united states which is not to say that it's entirely absent in the white house either and then third is what david talks the most about namely blame shifting you try to you know, you you try to arrange what you do and proceed in such a way that the blame for unintended consequences, and there will always be unintended consequences, is borne by someone someone other or some institution other than the Congress of the United States. So, based on our broad agreement about Congress as the epicenter of dysfunction, about these three linked but distinct modes of congressional misbehavior, We agree as a general matter that there is an urgent need for institutional and process reform that touches on many different areas of what Congress does. We have an outdated budget process which was designed and passed in 1974 in response to Richard Nixon's executive branch power grab So that's why it's known as the 1974 Budget and Anti-Impoundment Act. It was at least as much about the shift of taking back Congress's legitimate and central fiscal powers from an executive branch that had aggrandized itself at the expense of Congress, even even though the budget is supposed to be the province of Congress. And so... That bill did a lot of good things. For example, it established the Congressional Budget Office as a count as an analytical counterweight to the Office of Management and Budget. That's good. It established a timetable for an orderly budget process that looked good on paper and functioned pretty well in practice for close to 20 years. But the Act has been in existence for more than 40 years, and it really has not functioned as designed in the past. 20 years, and it has led to various sorts of fiscal abuses, including short-term budget resolutions, a constant resort to continuing resolutions, the repeated failure even to enact budget resolutions, uh, the repeated failure to adopt the 12 appropriations bills, which the basic framework of the 1974 Budget Act requires, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on for hours about the failure of the budgeting process in the Congress of the United States. We also agree that there is an outdated administrative and regulatory process. Uh, There is a legitimate scope for regulation, a proposition that I hope someone who's spent many, many years at the NRDC would be willing to endorse. Uh, But the question is, when has regulation gone beyond its appropriate bounds and serves as a substitute for legislative responsibility? And the answer is, and here I agree with David, a lot. So we need a thorough review of the processes of the modern administrative state. Uh, I don't I don't think that abolishing it, declaring it unconstitutional would be a very wise or certainly not a very feasible procedure. Some good friends of mine have written books about the unconstitutionality of the administrative state. uh, And they are gathering dust on on shelves. But we certainly need to rethink our excessive reliance on the machinery given quasi-constitutional status by the 1946 Administrative Procedure Act. We also agree that, that the, use of, the use of mandates as a way of getting beneficiaries of federal programs to comply with federal policies is, is overdone. By the way, that is certainly the position of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which drew a pretty bright line in a decision that i'm sure left many people in this room unhappy striking down in part but only in part the affordable care act and the part struck down was the use was was the use of congressional carrots and sticks in order in effect to require each of the 50 states to expand its medicaid program and and the uh, the supreme court said no that's a bridge too far you cannot use the government's spending power in order to enforce that level of compliance at local levels of the federal system. We also agree finally, uh, and this I think will be an easy sell at Cato, that when government does get into the loan guarantee business or the insurance business, the principle of market pricing, plus when necessary, transparent subsidies for lower income people Ought to be the strategy of choice. Uh, let me take let me take a topic even more a you know, topic even more even closer to the front pages than loan guarantees. The federal flood insurance program. Okay, uh, somebody wants to find madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, if the federal flood insurance program isn't a perfect example of that, I don't know what is. You underprice insurance in floodplains, and guess what? People who get flooded three, four, five, six times have incentives to rebuild in exactly the same place. So it'll be flooded a seventh time, and the taxpayers will pay a seventh time for houses being built where they have no business being built. So, you know, all of that is in line with the spirit and much of the letter of your book. Well, where do I disagree? I think my disagreement is more on the analysis than it is on the prescription. Uh, first of all, I have a different take on mistrust of government and why it has grown. As you, you, know, as you graciously pointed out in one of my columns, I said, look, We lurched from a high-trust society in 1965 to a low-trust society in 1975, and we have been a low-trust society ever since. If I ask myself why the lurch occurred in that particular 10-year period, I don't think it has much to do with the Congress of the United States or with any of the tricks that you enumerate in your books. If you asked me to line up the culprits in a police lineup, you know, they, they would include, you know, lying about the war in Vietnam and then failing to either prosecute it to a successful conclusion or reaching an honorable diplomatic solution. I would cite Watergate. I would cite the rise of the counterculture and the explosion of cultural debate and disagreement after an extended period of cultural consensus. Uh, I would talk about I would talk about the civil rights movement, which boosted trust among minorities, but it reduced trust among whites, particularly particularly, uh, among working class whites, and also an overlapping category of whites south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, And finally, I would say that The collapse of the bipartisan consensus that had characterized the period from 1945 to 1965, and its replacement with a process of increasing polarization, which has then gone on in the 40 years since the mid-1970s, I would cite polarization itself as a cause of mistrust. I do not agree that mistrust causes polarization. I think it's the other way around. Polarization causes mistrust because there is a lot of political science evidence that when elites debate and argue and disagree at the uppermost levels of the federal government, that has a trickle-down effect. People in localities, average citizens, lose confidence in government when they see partisans of the two political parties yelling at each other. That's not the way they want their government to function. They certainly don't want to see it functioning that way. So I might add, as a sixth cause, the increased transparency of government proceedings, the growth of videos of news media that make the proceedings of the government, with the exception of the Supreme Court, visible 24-7 to so many voters. Uh, Which brings me to my second analytical disagreement. Uh, David points, quite rightly, to a distressingly high drama-to-decisions ratio at the federal government. Much drama, few decisions. Why is that? Once again, I don't think that has a lot to do with the tricks that he catalogs in this book, which are perfectly accurate as far as they go. I think that the high drama to decisions ratio is a direct consequence of something I've spent the last decade studying in detail, that is the rise and seemingly inexorable rise of political polarization. In this country, uh, we now have a situation in which the members of the two political parties not only disagree with one another, but if survey evidence is to believe, they loathe each other. So it's not just cognitive disagreement; it's what the social psychologists call affective disagreement. And one of the consequences of that is that members of the two political parties don't want to have dinner together, whether that whether in Congress or at the grassroots level. They don't even want to live in the same neighborhoods anymore. So the population, is sorting itself out into red counties, red congressional districts, red states. Uh, Final point. Uh, If Congress has been engaged in a conscious blame-shifting strategy, it has been a terrible failure. Not only is Congress the most broken branch of the government, it is also the most despised branch of the government. If Congress got credit for all of the good things and and didn't take blame for any of the bad things, why is the public approval of of the EPA four times as high as the public approval of Congress? This blame shifting strategy is so transparent that the American people have seen through it. Congress is not fooling anyone certainly not fooling the American people. And the biggest swings of public opinion have come with regard to the Congress of the United States, and particularly the House of Representatives. After a period of stability, we have had a series of big wave elections where the public discontent has swept out members of the House of Representatives lock, stock, and barrel. And so this has been a period in which the American people have fingered the Congress of the United States as the locus not only of dysfunction, but also as the locus of their discontent, and they've acted on that. So, uh, you know, I I like the charts that you put up at the beginning about the blame-shifting strategy, but I think you may have given, perhaps inadvertently, the the impression that this was a winning political strategy for the Congress. It has been a dismal political failure. Thank you.
1: Do you want to respond to those? Yes, I'd like to. Well, thank you, Bill. I enjoyed your remarks. And I guess better get up here. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed your remarks. Uh, I want to say a few things. First of all, like you, I wondered what Hubert Humphrey would think about this book. And then I got a letter from Humphrey's uh, old uh, legislative director, John Stewart. And he said in the letter, Hubert Humphrey would have been delighted with the book. And then I got a similar one from Ted Van Dyke. You know that name, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th- anyway, that made me feel good. Uh, now, um, so I have a few remarks. War. There's only been five declarations of war in this nation's history. But for the first 160 years, we were in many wars, but they were sp- s- quite specifically authorized. And that would have been no... Surprise to the framers. That's how they thought it would be. There were many undeclared wars in Europe prior to the adoption of the Constitution. What has happened more recently after the first 160 years is that we got into wars with Congress not voting at all or through some kind of euphemism like authorization for mean use of force or whatever. Um, Okay, Um, so that's one point. The second, You point out rightly that the Supreme Court in its decision on the Affordable Care Act did strike down the condition in there requiring the states to do certain things. That is the only bridge so far. The court has not and probably will not say that elsewhere because Congress is very clever about how to dress up the mandates it's putting on states so that they could pass judicial muster i 'm not for stopping all mandates what i 'm for is having Congress have to vote on the most controversial ones, not about voting on whether to put a uh, requiring states when they get grants to use good concrete, but on the stuff that 's really controversial. So what I want is votes on the mandates so that the members of Congress will have skin in the game when it comes to these decisions. Um, boy, do I agree with you on flood insurance I mean Members of Congress call these things natural disasters. They're political disasters. Congress put those houses there through the subsidies and the flood insurance. I agree with you, absolutely. OK. Now, as to our analytical disagreements, uh, I, don't think we, well, I don't think we disagree all that much. As to why the distrust, I agree trust fell because of Vietnam and Watergate and the counterculture. All that was going on. but. Those were transient things, and it didn't recover after that. And basically, it kept on going down. Uh, Yes, polarization has part of it, but I believe that the tricks have to do with the polarization. It's the tricks that allow one member of Congress to say, I'm against pollution killing children, and the other member of Congress to say, I'm against regulation killing jobs. That's talking past each other. It's only where people on both sides have to deal with in trade-offs that you could begin to get beyond polarization. I also agree with you that this transparency that our friend Jonathan Rauch talks about is a problem too. I think that we need is is transparency as to what they voted for and its consequences, not transparency in in the sense of having a camera in the room where they uh, craft the statute. Uh, and so I, I think that the tricks have to help to, uh, to cause the polarization that leads to the drama rather than the decisions. Um, as to gee congress ain 't so successful with the blame shifting, well, there are those polls that show that Congress is despised. We agree with that absolutely, but and you know the polls better than my, I do, but my impression is that there's lots of polls that more people who don't like Congress like their representative. And at the end of the day, what the representatives care about is getting re-elected. So I'm not sure we disagree all that much. And anyway, I enjoyed your comments. And thank you for reading the book.
0: (laughs) Thanks to David and Bill for the comments. Uh, I wanted to just take a few minutes here by posing the first question from Q&A. Um, You know, Bill said in regard to flood insurance that uh, the old saw about uh, if you keep doing the same thing in the same way and expecting different results, that's a sign of insanity. Well, I'm either insane or I work for Cato or both here, because I'm going to rise to say that in fact the uh, administrative state is unconstitutional, and in fact there's something called the non-delegation doctrine that is good constitutional law, it's just not enforced. Uh, and Philip Hamburger's book of last year makes the case. Uh, Philip Hamburger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, makes the case exactly why in the deep flow of history, the administrative states unconstitutional. So make that point. Hold back the floodwaters. Here come the floodwaters. I get that. But I want to ask a question that is not about the constitutionality of it, but about the following uh, contrarian idea. What if the non-delegation doctrine were enforced in a sensible way? How much, how many of the problems cited by both of you that you agree on would be either mitigated or dealt with in a, in a return to a Republican form of government, really? Uh, to what extent do you think that the actual delegation itself and is a form of irresponsibility, you could argue, that it's part of the problem here?
1: Well, if, if we, I think the the change that the delegation doctrine, the enforcement of the delegation doctrine would uh, would bring about, would be in regard to the regulation trick. So, it w- if you could somehow enforce it, then it would end the delegation trick. Uh, and I, ha- and the book I talked about here, a quarter century ago, sought to sought to find a way to enforce the the non-delegation doctrine. Um, For better or worse, uh, it it seems unlikely to me that that's going to come to pass. I mean, I've litigated about that in the Supreme Court and and so on. But uh, what I tried to do in this book is to come up with a solution that could work. And um, period.
2: Well, May Clarence Thomas not strike me dead for what I'm about to say. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I think, this may not be a popular view in this room, but it's what I think, that at some point, you know, the practice of what I'll call constitutional common law has to be taken seriously, okay? The Administrative Procedure Act, for better or for worse, which codified what you're deploring, uh, was enacted by the Congress of the United States in 1946. Okay? It has never been found unconstitutional. It has not, to the best of my knowledge, been seriously challenged for almost that entire 70-year 70 70 year period. Up. Uh, You don't have to be Bruce Ackerman to believe that the Constitution is transformed by processes other than the process of formal amendment. For better or for worse, the administrative state is now part of the constitutional common law. And I think it would be wise for Cato, you know, to think about ways of reining it in and pruning it back rather than, you know, rather than embarking in a Don Quixote-style strategy of trying to strike it down, because that will not happen. That's what we do. I know, but where has it gotten you?
0: (laughs) But what do you think... Do you not want to entertain the idea that if non-delegation were enforced, it might make Congress a better institution, or not?
2: Uh, I'm willing to entertain the fact that we ought to look at the full range of consequences from striking down the non-delegation doctrine. And speaking, you know, speaking as a part-time functionalist, Mm. I think there are reasons why the administrative state grew in the United States as it has in the advanced, every single advanced industrialized nation, Mm. right? Uh, And it has to do with all sorts of features of the modern economy and society, which I doubt very much the Cato Institute would like to repeal or replace. So uh, we... unless we understand what else would happen or fail to happen if we repealed the non-delegation doctrine, simply looking at one strand of the consequences I think would be an analytical mistake. And it seems to me that in a change so radical, the probability of massive unintended consequences and uncontemplated consequences would be so great uh, that I find it almost impossible to answer your question.
0: That may be the first time in history that the uh, unintended consequences argument has been used against the Cato Institute. We've certainly used it. Now we can move invite to- question- me, Invite me here more often, and he'll hear it more often.
1: <laughs> we'll take you up on that. Actually, let me let me just yeah. say one other thing about this. Um, uh, another response to uh, the regulation, regulation problem is the statute pending in Congress was passed by the House, called the Regulations from the Executive in Need of Scrutiny Act. The idea being that that uh, um, major regulations uh, from agencies would be voted on uh, in um, um, in Congress. Now, the thing about it is, it's never going to pass because. Uh, It it is framed in a way that's not pro-accountability, it's anti-regulation. For example, it only involves regulations that increase regulatory costs, not regulatory changes that decrease regulatory protection. So that's why no Democrat's going to vote for the thing as is. So you think about it, it's perfect for the Republicans in Congress. They could be for responsibility, but because it's never going to pass, They never have to be responsible. So that's why I'm aiming at something that could be done, which is to make them responsible uh, for a a, a version of Reigns that actually is fair, therefore could appeal to some swing Democrats and could pass.
0: There is the odd thing about Reigns, which is that it's to force people to do their job, but they have to vote to do it, that they're manifestly not doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's... It's incoherent in a sense. Right.
2: Well, there's an old Latin phrase: "Who will guard the guardians?"
0: Yeah. <laughs> that was the—that's the Supreme Court, the Constitution. So let's go to the floor. We've got plenty of time here. Please uh, uh, raise your hand and wait for the microphone, so everyone here and on the internet can hear your question. If you wish to do, please identify yourself and your affiliation. If you don't wish to, we don't require mandate publicity here. But uh, generally speaking, people do. Uh, The lady here in the front, and then the gentleman. Um.
3: And <laughs> my question is for you, is where in your book, and, and I've enjoyed your, your talk, where in your book does it tell us where we can go for help and how we can make the changes to hold them accountable to do their job?
1: Okay, well, on that website I showed you, there's a heading there called Take Action, and it suggests ways that you could, uh, number one, tell your representative that you want this honest deal. And number two, it shows you, it gives you a list of organizations that are, in principle, committed to more transparency in government. And I think that if just a small minority of voters begin to tell members of Congress they want an honest deal, I think the the way the politics could work out is it could begin to slowly shift the, uh, the ship of state. So I urge you to go to that Take Action tab there and follow it along. And if not so many people do it, I think we got a chance. The
3: um, other part of it would be, for instance, I'm a Look, My, my representative a Democrat. He refuses to even meet with me or talk to me. How do we teach them that they're government over all the people and not just the Democrats or just the Republicans? I I think it's in my area, it's a Democrat. In other people's area, it could be a Republican. How do we teach them that the American people are one group and no matter who elects you into it, you govern all of us and we all are owed that respect?
1: Well, I, I think that making them responsible for consequences is the first big step. I mean, as the, f- the system works now, they're not responsible for consequences, and they get a lot of our money to provide constituency services, They'll give us flags or help us with, you know, with visas or whatever it is. And so they're, you know, they're in large part insulated and most of the time get reelected, even though the governments sort of aren't unpopular. So I think the, the first step is to make them responsible. De-
0: okay, Gentleman good. right here on
4: the... Rich Rider with International Investor. Uh, You touched on it very briefly at the the end that everyone hates Congress, but they love their individual representative or senators. I think there have been some surveys showing that most Americans have a very difficult time even telling uh, who their representatives and senators representing them are. Uh, There's a lot of confusion between their state and federal representatives. My point is uh, the media has a role or what could we do to bring more transparency to this notion that when there is a bill that fails or a bill that, that, that people can point to saying this was what created this such and such problem, this is how your senator or representative voted on it three, four, seven years ago. Or something even more uh, recent, and, and the final point I, I'd like to ask is you how do you feel about referendums turning more things over to referendums by uh, the public at large rather than a more form, you a know, form of direct democracy, if you will?
1: Okay, um, you've raised a number of important points. Um, there are There is an important book by Page and Shapiro, a, a team of well-respected political scientists, uh, that say that they've looked over half a century of polling data, and they found that even though people didn't know the acronyms for federal agencies and were unclear about the names of the representatives and that kind of thing, uh, that uh, people were really able to make in the aggregate, pretty sensible policy choices. Pretty se- make sensible distinctions. So, conclusion: people can think sensibly about policy, even though they don't know specifics. Number two, I remember as a youngster, and I'm, I think I'm older than you, um, um, that I remember campaigns. Uh, this is pre-trick era, where uh, a candidate for office would say. Congressman so-and-so voted for this statute, and this statute does this bad thing to you voters, and you should vote for me, right? Well, we can't do that anymore, because so much stuff, you know, bad consequences are so obscured, so it's hard to make the link between the congressman or congressperson who voted for it and the bad consequences. So I think that's what we really need to energize the system to make democracy work for us. As to referendum, uh, you know, I, I th- in principle, I'm not against referenda, but there could be referenda on only so many things. I mean, only a tiny minority of all the decisions that uh, government makes. So um, it seems to me that we need more than referenda to cure the maladies of our government. I wonder what you think about that.
0: Uh-
2: Well, referenda are one item on a long list of progressive era reforms that didn't work out exactly as intended. Uh, The primary system would be another one. Uh, In principle, it sounds terrific. In practice, the referendum process is subject to all manner of abuse, starting with the, the difference between refer, There are many differences between referenda and, and ordinary legislation, but one of them is that you can't amend a referendum, right? You're presented with a take-it-or-leave-it proposition, yes or no, to the following language. And the problem with that is that it gives a great advantage to the people who actually get to write the language. It can bias the entire referendum in one direction or another, So the real politics is then displaced to the much less transparent language writing process. And secondly, it turns out that referenda are even more exposed to the influence of big money in the political process than the ordinary legislative process is. And if you don't believe me, just look at all the billionaires who get involved in referenda. Uh, That's particularly conspicuous in California, but you you can see it everywhere. So if you like non-transparent backroom dealing and the disproportionate influence of money over the political process, then you should love referenda. But otherwise, I would not counsel them as a steady diet. As one small and relatively rarely used tool in the armory of democracy, sure. But as a replacement for the legislative process,
0: no way. The lady back here on the right side.
5: Thank you. Uh, Tamina Chaudhary from the World Bank. Um, As an administrative historian, um, I found your uh, book and the era you focus on very fascinating. But I was wondering, um, can we really talk about the because um, because the book focuses on the Congress and its evolution in the post uh, Second World War era? Uh, so I was wondering, can we really accurately uh, draw a picture of the administrative history uh, of the of the uh, if, if I, you know for lack of a better word the U.S. system without looking at the office of the presidency? Uh, that is um, how it has also evolved uh, uh, from uh, uh, 1940s to now, and the, and the scope and the scale uh, of the office uh, um, and the and the person who occupies it, and this is beyond the personality of the president. I mean, there has been a lot of work done on the uh, various US presidents, but not so much on the office and the evolution of the office. Um, um, so I was wondering, um, can we really understand the current American uh, administrative dilemma uh, and the, if you like, constitutional crisis and all of that without really, um, it, because it seems to me that the, it, the study is done more in some kind of isolation. Uh, and And some of the other very vari- variables uh, that uh, fundamentally affects it are are sort of uh, not looked at um, so yeah, so my question is really about the presidency and can we really look at the Congress and its evolution without that office?
1: Uh, well I think that 's a wise question and and there 's no doubt about it that that uh, the changes that I talk about have had their effects on the, on the way the presidency works, I don't put it, but I think my bottom line of my answer would be this way: If I understood more about the office of the presidency, I would have written, written a better book. <laughs> so I agree, but, and I, and I c- can't claim to know that much about the organization of the presidency.
0: Gentleman on the aisle there.
1: My name is Bill Newman.
2: Uh, We have a $20 trillion debt in this country. Reference was made to the uh, Congressional Budget Act. And as you know, we have a CBO. CBO scores every piece of legislation that's considered by the Congress. CBO makes projections
1: about future costs. And I guess I would ask both of you to show me the path
2: uh, you, the, and the changes that need to be made in the Budget Act process to try to get a handle on our now overwhelming and continuing to grow national debt?
1: Well, m- my analysis of, of the debt problem owes a lot to Dr. Jagadish Gokhale, who was a senior fellow here at Cato, and I learned a ton from him. One thing I learned is that our current debt is $20 trillion. But if you look at the promises that government has made, Congress has made, and the revenue that will come, come in under the uh, current tax structure, we are going to be $100 trillion in debt. Another thing I learned from him is that the 10 year framework, which is the, the, the keystone of the current budget process, is garbage because what Congress does is it jiggers the statutes to bring revenues into the 10 year time frame and put costs beyond it. Another thing I learned from him is that when they attempt to do long term projections, they are the kind of thing that would get a private corporation's executives put in jail if they did them under the Securities Act for securities fraud. Example, they will take into account the revenues that we're going to pay in from people will pay in for Medicare or Social Security from now to the end of time or from now for the next 75 years. But they won't look at the obligations we have to the people paying in so for the people who are now, let's say, um, you know, just born, we're going to count in all of their contributions, but not a lot of the benefits they expect, and it goes on and on like that. And so um, I have a fairly detailed explanation in the book of how we could sensibly estimate the amount of tax increase or benefit cuts we're gonna need per average family to bridge the, to bridge the gulf. And, uh, and, and then if we do that, and we, we could easily calculate how much the most recent Congress has made that amount greater or less, which allows us in turn to, to put blame on individual members of Congress because we know how they voted on stuff. Whereas now all we got is the debt, $20 trillion. That has no more meaning to you or me than the distance to the moon. And we really don't know who caused it. Only when you get personal responsibility are you gonna get sensible reaction. So I'm not calling for any particular fiscal policy. I'm calling for a fiscal policy for which Congress is responsible. Once they have to be responsible, then we're gonna have to be responsible for whether we wanna pay for the benefits we're demanding.
2: Well, this is this may be an area of analytical disagreement between us, uh, depending on which method and which methodologists you you endorse. Uh, the first the first question is uh, what the goal is. You know, I am as as some of you know, I was a reasonably senior official in Bill Clinton's administration. And I was highly supportive of the president's efforts, first by himself and then working across party lines after 1994, uh, to, you know, to rein in uh, the annual budget deficit, which of course was contributing to the mounting debt. Uh, At the end of the 1990s, there were four consecutive years of budget surpluses. Uh, the, chairman of, the then chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Alan Greenspan, delivered worried testimony uh, in the spring of 2001 to the effect that if something weren't done, we would be in danger of paying off the entire national debt. And then you know, what would the, you know, where would the world park its money where it was looking for a secure haven? Uh, the, believe it or not, uh, this was just 16 years ago that we were having this discussion, and now we're talking about $20 trillion and rising. I could go through an extended analysis of the path that led us from four straight years of balanced budget and the expectation of the extinguishing of the national debt to where we now find ourselves, but I think in the interests of bipartisan comedy uh, that perhaps we should leave, let, you know, leave the past to the past and focus on what we need to do now. Uh, and there are two different portions of the federal government that provide, I think, reasonably good points of departure for that discussion. The first thing you have to do is decide what your goal is. Uh, If the goal is to pay off the $20 trillion debt, that is not going to happen in the lifetime of anyone in this room, I confidently predict. If if the goal is to comply with the first law of holes, namely that when you're in one, stop digging, uh, then we can begin to have a productive conversation. And one way of defining the stop digging goal goal is don't make the ratio of debt to the GDP any higher than it is now, and if possible, reduce it. Uh, There's a document called the Financial Report of the U.S. Government that. David talks about in his book, I think a little bit better of it than he does. Uh, but if you believe if if you believe this report in order to achieve that definition of fiscal sustainability, if we acted right now, we would have to change spending and taxation, lower spending and or raise taxes by the sum of of GDP in order to generate a sustainable fiscal policy over the next uh, 75 years. Uh, If CBO went through a similar exercise, uh, what would we need to do in order to stabilize the debt to GDP ratio over the next 30 years, according to its most recent report? Uh, The answer is that we 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 would need to change spending and revenues so as to uh, narrow the the debt, annual debt by the equivalent of 1.9% of GDP, which in a $19 trillion economy is a little bit less than uh, $400 billion a year in total. So that sounds like a lot of money, but in fact, it's not. We've made changes to the federal budget on the spending side and the tax side in my lifetime and yours, at least that large. Uh, and so that's one—that's one way of looking at the problem, you know. Ask what it would take to stop digging the hole any deeper, and go from there. Now, I know David, in his book, offers some reasons not to fully trust the process—that analytical process that I just laid out. It gets very technical. Suffice it to say that he and I disagree on this point. And now, over to you, David.
1: Well, thank you. Um, I. First of all, um, I think that President Clinton moved in a good direction, so I I applaud that. Second of all, I'm not for paying off the debt. Alexander Hamilton thought that the debt served a good purpose. I I think that the chairman of the Federal Reserve made some sense there. I agree the goal should be to keep the the debt to GDP ratio steady or, or falling. That's the end, but, I, but most of all, I think that, that what we should be focusing on is the relationship between long-term spending and long-term revenue, and that needs to be in balance in order for the debt-to-GDP debt ratio to be steady. I mean, we could have a debt forever if we, if we have revenue sufficient to pay off the principal and the interest mm-hmm. as it accrues. And so the question, the critical question is: what is, how much do we have to raise taxes or decrease spending in order to, um, to bring these things into a line? And what Dr. Gauclay concludes is that the kind of figures in the financial report of the United States are about five times too low. Uh, that there would have to be a, a whopping increase in our income tax or other taxes in order to bring those things into line, and that's what's not being revealed. So the parts of the, of the federal financial report uh, of the United States that uh, you're pointing to are in the begin, beginning few pages. Where they really distort things is back in the footnotes about page 280. And so if you really delve into the thing which Dr. Gokhale says is they're hiding the ball.
0: Lady in
3: front, please. Still got a few minutes. Okay. I'm a former congressional employee and worked for several federal agencies. Um, I'm wondering if um, it would be something to think about to have um, Congress provided with conflict resolution training. You've got Georgetown. You've got George Mason. You've got... Harvard, Pepperdine, so many good universities that would probably do this pro bono to make Congress function and, and be able to to really come together to be able to look at what is beyond their constituents' interest and actually see that with their constituents' interest it could also be the national interest. And then, um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I started thinking, well, why can't we just do it with the orientation of new members? But I think it needs to go beyond that because. I mean, especially new members are coming in with their boxing gloves on. They're not, you know, the last person that you want to have sit down at a table and try to negotiate a health care bill or you know infrastructure policy or anything like that because they're not going to work with other people. And I think that relationships are very important. You learn so many things through this conflict resolution training, and you see the members who are very effective in walking to the other aisle, like, say, John McCain, Hillary Clinton when she was a senator. I mean, they know how to try to really get things done. And then I think, too, when you talk about the hearings being very transparent and members, you know, are just playing to the cameras, why not get the Congressional Research Service, who are subject matter experts, to attend those hearings, to be the person that the members look to or to say to the member that I don't believe that that will work for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons. I mean, why not just, you know... Try to do this because I think that polarization, the, you know, just never coming together on anything. And I've had to do a lot of conflict resolution, especially at, at FERC. And FERC was an agency where you had big energy companies, little landowners. And it's amazing when you do learn skills how you can bring them t- together, you can resolve, you know, problems. And um, it's just, it's, these are just my thoughts. So.
1: Um, I don't know that much about conflict resolution, but I think what you're saying makes sense. But I think there's an even more fundamental problem, and it's a problem that Bill alluded to earlier. There was a time when members of Congress lived in Washington. Their families lived in Washington. They knew each other from the neighborhood. The kids went to school together. And partly due to to Newt Gingrich's uh, decisions, uh, members of Congress spent very little time here, uh, and I think that uh, more, the fundamental – and members of Congress used to have lunch together mm-hmm. across party lines. They don't anymore. But I think that having them here more, you know, not uh, just spending a few days a week here, uh, would go a long way to that. And I don't know how you mandate that. But one thing is if – my honesty will Act passed, they'd have to be here a lot more because they'd be more responsible for consequences so it would be in their self-interest to be here. So I think getting them to move back to Washington would be a great thing, even more fundamental than your sensible ideas about conflict resolution.
2: Yeah, I think I have the silver bullet solution to this problem. Outlaw the jet airplane, Ooh. and they would be unable to return to their constituents on weekends well very long weekends like four day weekends week in and week out but in a slightly more serious vein about 8 years ago i helped to start an organization called no labels which uh, you know which has spent a, which spent a lot of time creating a genuine bipartisan caucus in the house of representatives which now narr- which now numbers 22 republicans and 22 democrats and the rule is that if a Republican wants to join the group, he or she has to go out and find a Democrat, it's sort of the Noah's Ark principle, and vice versa. And this group, which has been meeting together, you know, building trust and confidence across party lines, is now beginning to propose big solutions to major problems, like, like health insurance, and they're about to come out with a bipartisan proposal on tax reform, coupled with an infrastructure program. So there are ways of resolving conflict, but they take a lot longer than conflict resolution seminars when you're dealing with senators and representatives, I'm afraid, but even that, even what you propose would be a lot better than what we have now.
0: I'm also afraid to say our time is up and lunch looms. I'd like to thank David Schoenbrod for writing this book and for coming today, and I'd like to thank Bill Galston for coming to comment on it. Lunch will be upstairs. The restrooms are on your right where the yellow is. And I'd like to welcome you all to lunch here at Cato and thanks for coming to the forum.